Well, hello there. Happy weekend. The joys of being a goddamn business owner. Let's start there. Uh, it is 11.45 a.m. on Saturday right now, and I'm just leaving work. i got to run up to Rubino's in Webster, pick up my uh, Rock's Meals. I'm also going to pick up a sub for lunch. Try to get home in time for the Bills game. I mean, I'll be home for most of it, obviously. I want to be home for kickoff, though. Should be fine. We got an hour and uh, hour and twenty minutes to go from Bergen to Webster to Brighton. You think I got it? I think I got it. Uh, the joys of being a business owner. Let's start there. Eleven forty-five a.m. I just clocked out of work. You want to know what time I got to work today? Two a.m. God damn it! So a uh, couple of kids that work for me give me the call last night that one of their roommates got the COVID. And as of last night, it was suspected. And then basically what happened, I went to work at 2 a.m. this morning, not because I'm some sort of, honestly, not because I'm, you know, it wasn't, the real reason is just because I couldn't fall back asleep. So basically I woke up at 1.30 a.m., take a piss, looked at my phone, and, and one of the kids in question here had texted me and said, uh, Yep, you know, roommate tested positive, so I won't be in tomorrow. And by the way, his buddy works for me too, and they both work Saturdays together, and they both live together, so that means two guys, two guys out. And when I saw that, joys of being a business owner means not only am I now going to work Saturday, which in all honesty I was planning on going anyway, but my day was going to look a lot different. Uh, Not only am I going to work Saturday, but I'm going to work, you know, and doing production and then I couldn't fall back asleep, so I just said, fuck it. And I just got in the car and drove to work and uh, knocked out a few kettles worth of stuff. Got about half of the work done. I'm going to head back tomorrow, get the other half done, and uh, try and get something resembling a weekend maybe next weekend. We'll see. Yeah, these fucking kids, man, they just don't. It's that generation. They just, well, I guess at this point there's been issues with all generations, but that generation just... You know, one of the kids, again, in question here, this is the fourth time he's gone on, I may have been exposed to COVID leave. And, uh, you know, every time he shrugs, you know, his hands are up in the air going, I don't understand. I don't understand. I can't believe it. I can't, but I'm going at this point, uh, I'll break it down for you. Uh, You're hanging out with people. That's your first issue. And second of all, the people you're hanging out with are hanging out with other people. And none of y'all are being careful. You haven't created little bubbles for yourselves. You haven't created little bubbles full of people. Like me, for example, we've got, you know, and not that not that any of us are immune to being exposed. None of us are immune to being exposed. But, uh, you know, you, you, mit, you mitigate your risk. You minimize your bubble. You know, we've got, like, for example, my mother-in-law in our bubble, who we've kind of given ourselves the green light to be around she helps out with childcare and whatnot but you gotta you gotta minimize the bubble and i just think that young generation's not doing a good job although quite frankly nobody's really doing a good no generation at this point's doing a good job this is really covid to be honest with you covid is the first time that the millennials have kind of outdone all the other generations because the millennials i think are doing the best possible job of anybody of obeying the uh, COVID recommendations. So, I did see Cuomo was talking about, you know, we're kind of, we're moving slowly, but at least on Monday, they're going to start to make it a little easier to understand who can sign up and when they can sign up and how they can sign up to get the uh, vaccine. So that's good, at least. Uh, A little update on my grandmother. Grandma Lucy has been on a ventilator for a full week now, and... Uh, the, the, you know, I'm just hearing through my parents, my parents get a phone call every day and literally every day they tell, they tell my parents that she is, you know, hours or days away from passing on. And I I won't go through the whole story again. You can go listen to the last two weeks worth of podcasts if you want to hear how that has been going, that saga. But, um, you know, I, I, I feel terrible for my grandmother, mostly feel terrible for my father. My grandmother has had Alzheimer's and really has not been my grandmother for about a decade at this point. But uh, I just feel terrible for my father. 
to tell you the truth. I mean, you know, it's it's he's he's losing his mother. I mean, that's that's where the grieving will be is for my dad. Uh, you know, for my grandmother, it, it's almost and I hate to say it, but it, it is what it is. I mean, it's almost a good thing. She's ninety one years old, and she's for ten years she's not had her mind. I mean, what kind of life is she living? She lives in a she lives in the Alzheimer's unit of a nursing home. And for the last couple of years when I've gone to visit her, and I haven't visited her in about a year, but the last couple of years before COVID that I got to visit her, she basically spends the whole time sitting in the corner mumbling to herself. I mean, it's not a life to live. So, but I but I feel terrible for my father, you know, and that's really where it comes down to. So anyway, today's podcast is uh, an interview. This is uh, scintillating content, ladies and gentlemen. This is what you've got now with me, and that is... Uh, interview with a, a food safety specialist <laughs> I used to do I used to I used to do dick jokes you know I used to work in radio and now I'm interviewing the food but this is a great guy and it's a great story I think he's it's some of the stuff might seem pretty boring to you but some of the stuff is like you know we get into like best buy dates and use by dates and how strict should we be why are potato chip bags half full? I think you'll you'll find the interest. Uh, I think you'll find the reason why to that to be kind of interesting, and all that's coming up. But I mean, we've got a couple topics we still have to cover here up top before we get into the interview. But my boy Craig Michelson of Food Safety Quality Services, Food Quality Safety Services, I think it's one one way or the other. Um, he's great. He's worked with a lot of local companies. We don't say them because there's confidentiality, so we don't say them in the. Uh, interview but for me I, I can tell you working with the craft cannery that's for sure so a couple of things to get into um one small thing and one big thing the big thing is is uh, the obvious thing i think it's politics i'll get through my small thing before we get to the big thing the small thing is i was listening to oh this is going to be embarrassing but i was listening to a podcast called you're wrong about and it's a great podcast basically they they kind of take a deep dive into stories, and it's it's kind of true crime-esque, but I don't know that it's truly a straight-up true crime. In fact, the topic that I'm about to tell you about that I was listening to has nothing to do with true crimes. Basically, they, they do a lot of crime and criminals and stuff, but they do deep dives into things where, in general, the story that's out there that we all kind of know isn't entirely true, and that's why the podcast is called You're Wrong About. And so... Not embarrassed to tell you, spent the last few hours, uh, the overnight hours tonight at my factory canning some uh, sauce and listening to a four-part series on You're Wrong About, about Jessica Simpson. (laughs) And uh, it was a really interesting story. It was basically a a telling of her memoir and kind of her relationships and her upbringing and you know her competition with the with the Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera's and how they were, you know they were sex symbol, teen sex symbols, and she was kind of more wholesome, religious and whatnot. But she was constantly being pushed into trying to be a sex symbol. They wanted very badly the record label, the marketing people, all of them wanted very badly for her to become a sex symbol. But it wasn't her. She just wasn't comfortable with it, and. The topic I wanted to get into that they bring up in this is, you know, she was threatened pretty constantly as she was kind of not wanting to be this sex symbol. She was threatened pretty constantly with this notion that, hey, you know, there's there's always going to be somebody out there willing to take your place for less money. And it was a concept I wanted to bring up because... It, it, that's a thing that was held against me for a long time in my previous career. And I think it's a thing that's held against people a lot. And that is the fact that, you know, you're easily replaceable. And here's the unfortunate fact about that. It's true. Most of us, most people are, are replaceable. I, I think that, that the idea of being irreplaceable is very rare. And I think it's even more rare than people realize. I think that there are plenty of people who are delusional about how replaceable they are. And I'll be the first to admit for 15 years in radio, you know, I I was absolutely replaceable. They could have gotten rid of me. They would have gotten two weeks worth of angry letters 
and everyone would have forgotten and moved on. Absolutely. And that's the way it worked. I mean, I was, in fact, and I'll use radio as the example, I was part of many public figures being let go. And every single time it was the same drill. You know, somebody would be let go, suddenly they're no longer on the air, the company gets about two weeks worth of angry letters from listeners, and then life goes on. Everybody forgets. Um, what can we do about it? I mean, what can we do? First of all, I think it's on management. And I'll take this, now that I am in management, now that I am an owner, you know, now that I'm sort of the, the, the uh, in my company at least, I'm sort of the top level of management at this point, I, I think my job to combat this notion that, hey, there's somebody out there who will take your job for less money. I think it's incumbent upon me to never, ever, ever pull that out on somebody. I just think it's shitty management. And by the way, if you're saying, Paul, has anyone ever said, absolutely I've been told that. I was told that to my face by my ex-manager. I believe the exact words were, I can find a new producer tomorrow. And he could have. He wasn't, he wasn't wrong. But using that against your employee is just bush league. It's just bullshit. It makes you a shitty manager. Saying something like that just makes you suck as a, a power figure. But it doesn't change the fact that it's, it's true. And Jessica Simpson dealt with that. You know, Jessica Simpson kind of dealt with the, hey, we want you to show midriff in your music video. Oh, but I don't want to. You know, it's against my image. Oh, hey, look, you know, if, if, you don't want, if you're not going to take your career seriously, we'll find somebody who wants this. And then she, you know, and you look at back at her music videos, and there she is showing midriff. And it sucks. It just sucks. Okay, let's move on. Let's get into the meaty topic. Before we get into <laughs> the sexiness of food safety, let's get into the, uh, the fray that this year, the coop. What did the, didn't the Times of India have a great headline? I think I saw it on Facebook. Ku Klux Coop. What happened over the week uh, in the Capitol, the protesters, and again, protesters is the wrong word, the rioters, the criminals who broke into the Capitol. You know, I think it finally did it. Yeah, I saw somebody tweet this out, and this is, t this is tough. <coughs> Excuse me, this is tough sledding for me because... Very difficult to get political publicly, and I, and I won't even dive too deep into my politics either. But it's something you got to comment on. Um, the the bastard did it, didn't he? He made America great again. You know, he fucked up the presidency. He lost the House and he lost the Senate. God damn it, the bastard did it. He made America great again. <laughs> I saw somebody retweet that, and I went, "That's brilliant. That's brilliant." <laughs> That's true. No, I mean, it's just, I finally saw it happen after four years, you know, because I, I talked about this, and this is out there. You know, I did not vote for President Trump in 2016. Um, I remember the Trump thing kind of happening. I remember, and and nobody can deny this. Even the, the Donald Trump supporters to this day can't deny, in 2016... When Donald Trump ran for president, <coughs> excuse me, at the very beginning, it was a joke. It was funny. It was the reality TV guy was running for president. In fact, if you remember, he ran in 2012 very briefly and didn't make it very far at all. And I remember because I was on the radio at the time in 2012, it was kind of a joke Donald Trump was running. In 2016, it was kind of a joke as well until it wasn't anymore. And the way you knew that it wasn't a joke anymore was because people you knew and respected started to go public with the fact that they were supporting President Trump. And people I know, people I love, you know, voted for Donald Trump, and I don't hold that against them at all. I, I'm the type of guy I want to get along with everybody. My politics tend to be, you know, pretty all over the place, and there's certainly some things on which you can find me to be conservatives and plenty of things you can find me to be liberal and in general, I do vote Democrat, but that's not something I just vote blindly. I try to do my research, and I have voted for Republicans before. So really, I <coughs> excuse me with the coffee. I don't know what's going on. So really, I try to, you know, I, 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 I feel the way most people feel. I feel myself to be as in the middle as possible. I think a lot of people think that about themselves, but, you know, I think I practice what I preach. Anyway, 
in 2016, it started to happen where people, you know, people you considered to be normal people all of a sudden were supporting the reality TV guy for president. And then Trump got in and a lot of things happened. And were there some good things? You know, look, as a business owner, primarily interested in tax law, there were some good things. Uh, the etiquette was certainly never great. But now with what happened this week, it finally happened where some of those people who I love and am friends with and am friends with to this day and, and will never stop being friends with, who had supported him for four years, all of a sudden now these people are falling off. You're seeing people you know, posting their politics on Facebook saying, look, I, I'm out. I'm a Republican, but I'm, I'm off the Trump train after this. Because, you know, this was this was a pretty criminal act. I mean, this was a direct call to action. And perhaps what the president didn't realize was that he would be taken seriously. But at this point, I don't know how he didn't realize he would be taken seriously when he ordered the crowd to march to the Capitol. When his son ordered everyone to be strong. You have to be strong. Don't be weak. Be strong. But what we saw was criminal and a disgrace. And the most shocking image, I think, is that guy who had the Confederate flag walking around inside the U.S. Capitol. And the few people who remain supportive have, for the most part, used the argument that this was no different than the Black Lives Matter protests. And that, quite frankly, is what pissed me off enough to say, hey, Polly, you can't be silent this week. You gotta, you gotta speak up about this. The Black Lives Matter protests and that bullshit at the Capitol are two very, very different things. First of all, the criminal, <clears throat> excuse me, the criminal activity, the deaths, how about four deaths in one riot compared to how many deaths in the Black Lives Matter protests nationwide, night after night after night after night? But most importantly, the difference, I can't even believe I have to say this out loud. Black Lives Matter is about civil rights. It's about human rights. It's about treating people as your equal. The Trump protests is about delusion of having won an election that they didn't win. It's literally delusional. It's crazy. It's conspiracy theory. It's civil rights being compared to conspiracy theorists. I mean, it was good television. I'm not going to lie. That shit was some good television. And I was doomsday scrolling. I'm not going to I'm not going to pretend I'm too good to doomsday scroll. I was scrolling. I was uh, on Twitter that night going through looking at videos and pictures and shit and uh, I'm not going to lie. That was me. I was looking at all of it. I'm not going to pretend I'm too good to doomsday scroll. I know. That is one thing. I will say the news, there is something about the news that is a little shitty. The new, First of all, I've got a lot of friends in the media, a lot of friends in TV news. They're great people, and they work very hard, and they do some very great things. But, man, it, it's... <laughs> showing those images and those videos over and over and over and over and over on the news is it's tough because it's kind of contradictory right because the the journalists are they're wholesome and they're trying to get the message and they don't trying to get the message across and they don't want to spread or incite violence or negativity but then they just keep showing the images over and over and over and i mean well what do you think's gonna happen you know it's kind of like um it's kind of like and I remember I got in a fight in the, on the radio over this. And uh, this was one of those times where Weez was pissed at me for like a week because I had like statistical proof to back myself up. But I remember one time talking on the radio about how media covering mass shootings was bad. And, of course, the pushback on that is you can't not cover it. And I go, yes, I get that. But when you, you know, post the picture of the shooter and you – in your story, you're talking about his motive and his manifesto and what he said and what the point is he was trying to get across. You're essentially playing into his hands. You're getting his point across. 
and you're making him famous or infamous, I guess, by putting him on the news. And that was where we got into this fight was because I remember we saying to me like that, that these guys don't care about it. They don't care. Brah, these guys, they, they don't give a shit about being famous. And I just remember going, saying, no, some of them specifically say in their manifestos that that they are hoping that this goes viral, that this, you know, and they, they, some have even live streamed it and whatnot. So anyway, I basically said, you know, mass killer seeks media attention, mass shooter seeks media attention. And of course it's just article after article after article. And, you know, I I don't think we talked to me for a week after that, (laughs) but it was, you know, I wanted to get my point across, but the same thing here, you know, it's, they just incite more, you know. It just, it just. I think showing all those images just invigorates the next group. I'm worried about inauguration day. And one of the, I, and I'll leave you with this: the creepiest thing I have to say about the the protesters taking the Capitol. Uh, and yeah, I know I'm skipping through a lot because, of course, that's the point everyone wants you to make is they want you to make the point. Well, hey, if this was Black Lives Matter protest and Black Lives Matter got inside the Capitol, they would have been you know, beat to shit and killed and whatnot. That's, I I believe that to be true. Unfortunately, we'll never know for sure. But uh, I believe that to be true. There was, there's definitely some pretty damning footage of police officers, Capitol Police, just allowing protesters right on through the door. And I'll be interested to hear more about the investigation as to why those orders were given, why, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm remembering in Rochester, Black Lives Matter protesters being stopped blocks away from the police station and pushed back with rubber bullets, you know, and and then and then these guys are just allowed to take the U.S. Capitol. I mean, what the fuck? There's definitely I mean, heads are rolling over that. I mean, jobs are being lost for sure. I think resignations have already been tendered, but we need to see an investigation here report. How does that happen? How does that happen? All right, now that I've polarized my audience. No, I don't, you know, here's the thing. I don't know that I have polarized my audience. Now, I know there's still some out there. And, and I, by the way, I'm related to some of them. I love people. And I'm going to tell you this right here, right now. I have people that I love who are defending what happened at the Capitol. I have rel- they're distant relatives who I see once every two years at a family reunion. I don't want you to think I'm t- it's no it's no immediate family or anything like that. But I have distant relatives who are kind of ultra conservative, who uh, I've seen Facebook posts defending it and saying it was the right thing to do, and and I'm going Jesus, you know. But these are people I love, and these are people I'm not going to cut out of my life over this. I don't like when people cut people out of their life over politics. I love these people. And difference in opinions on politics are never going to make me hate you as a person. It's just never going to happen. <clears throat> never going to happen. And you know, ultra, because that, that, that's the thing. Ultra anything is bad. Ultra conservative is terrible. The ultra conservatives are, well, we, well we, we've been talking about it. But ultra liberals are just as bad, by the way. They're just as annoying. I mean... We got a lot of 28-year-old Emilys and Chads who are positive they have the life experience <laughs> to, to lecture you on your life. And that's that, that sort of that ultra-liberal. That, I, I don't like that either. You know, the ultra-conservative, the ultra. Either way, if you're too extreme on either side, you're, you come off a little crazy to me at least. All right, let me shut up. Maybe I did polarize my audience. If I did, I apologize. I love you. I love you, but I couldn't let that happen without at least voicing my opinion. You know, I was looking at a lot of people on Twitter and Facebook, you know, at least voicing their opinion. A lot of people who don't usually voice opinions, by the way, voicing opinions just to say, look, I denounce this. Because a lot of people are saying, look, I'm a registered Republican, but I want it to be known that I do not endorse this. So there was just a lot of that. And I felt, you know... Who am I if I'm not going to at least say something? So I figured this would be the place to do it. All right? I love you either way, even if I've been pissing you off for the last 10 minutes. Go Bills. Go Browns. I don't even know why they're making them play the goddamn game. They don't stand a chance, but maybe that's what we need. Maybe we need the Browns maybe need to be underdogs in order to pull this off. Like it, The odds have to be stacked so heavily against them 
that they that they kind of now they become the little engine that could you know and maybe that's what has to happen here and maybe that is what maybe that is what's happening so maybe it's a good thing that the browns have to play without their coaching staff and a bunch of players <clears throat> all right thank you thank you thank you for sticking through here is some scintillating food safety talk with my boy craig michelson So let me start off uh, this half podcast, half quality control meeting. What's a meeting slash podcast by telling you what I did, Craig, Okay. to severely um, screw things up around here this week. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. I've been, I've been waiting. So uh, just a quick introduction. Craig is our quality assurance guru here, and he has a business. He's an entrepreneur. Um, food safety quality services? Yes. Yeah, and we're going to get into your resume in a minute, Uh-oh. Okay. but I want to start off with a story, okay? So I, Craig, oh, by the way, Craig, we can curse on this. Okay, okay. excellent. So I, I fucked up. I did something bad. The other day, I'm loading a truck, and I, you know how our garage door only kind of, <laughs> you can probably already know where this is going, right? You know how our garage door, we just got it fixed, by the way. But you know how it didn't... From a previous problem? Uh, yes. You know how it didn't go up all the way, all the way? Well, uh, I didn't have it up all the way, all the way. And I was going in and out with a forklift loading up a truck. And on my third of three runs back to the truck to throw a pallet onto the truck, I raised my forks a little early and <laughs> crashed into the garage door. Wow. And it uh, created quite a scene. I broke you, our garage did door. Did you fall off? Is that why you wear the hard hat now? I no, no, no. I didn't oh. fall off or anything, okay. but I did damage the hell out of the door. And we had to call, you know, emergency garage door people to come and fix it. And it actually just got fixed this morning. So we had a day and a half of no garage door. So yesterday we did a couple receiving, and we had to do it like chain gang style from the back of the truck mm-hmm. into the building. <laughs> we had like four of us working on it. Nice. Um, anyway, the truck driver, when he sees me do it, uh, he, you know, he obviously has this look of horror in his face. And I look at him and I go, well, at least you got to witness something funny today. <laughs> and he says, he looks at me and goes, well, he goes, oh, I don't think that's funny anymore, young man. You know, when I was young, I used to think that kind of stuff was funny. But now I know how much trouble you're in with your boss, wow. he says. And uh, for anyone who doesn't know, I own this business, right? So technically speaking, I am the boss, which I said to him <laughs> then, I said, I go, boy, if I was in trouble, I would take trouble. Trouble would be great right now. Trouble would be fantastic. I got to pay for it. That's worse. Right. right. That's worse. Jeez. If all I had at that situation was I had to go in the other room and like some guy was going to yell at me for five minutes, oh, that'd be wonderful. No, I get the bill and that's worse. Wow. That's worse. But anyway, I'm kind of glad it happened to me and not at someone else. Right. Like if someone's going to do it, might as well be me. Could have been a little bit more dangerous too. You could have fallen off or sometimes yeah. the forklifts will die- take a nosedive too. Right. right. Yeah. No, I, I got off pretty easy. I basically just damaged the door. I mean, it really wasn't all that bad. I do have video, but I realize I don't think I brought my phone in here. I pulled the security camera video and, and uh, you know, I just wanted to be able to show like my wife. <laughs> I, I like to see that video would be good. <laughs> I'll show you video yeah, after the podcast. So anyway, um, Craig is here. Craig is our quality assurance guy. Craig has done some great work. I don't know. Uh, do you want to give your resume? Can we talk a little bit about like, first of all, let's start with as a child. Where are you actually from? Greece. You're Rochester, from Greece. Yeah. And in high school, what did you want to be when you grew up? Yeah. So I've always liked sciences. And uh, so I took a lot of courses in chemistry and biology, and I was kind of geared more towards chemistry and environmental science. Okay. So later on, in like in college, I took environmental sciences, and um, 
Yeah, my first job right out of school was in a, for a food company, uh, local here in Rochester, and I've just stayed in the food industry the, the whole time since. So your first job, were you like just working online or something? Or were you yeah, in QA um, or not? more QA in a yeah. lab. Okay. So I tested uh, food products much like you guys do here. Yeah. And uh, over the years, just increasingly learned more. You know, I had some great mentors over the years and um, learned a lot about microbiology and, and did that for quite a few years and uh, just kept you know, learning new things as time went on. And you, you love food quality. Like that's, that's, where, where did the passion for, yeah. I'm gonna, so you're a science guy and you like food. Yeah. And so the two just kind of combined into QA? Yeah, I just love, you know, I love dealing with new situations and different challenges and different people. And, yeah. you know, so in food, you can make food a lot of different ways and there's a lot of different industries. So, you know, it's it's never, it's always something new. And, um, you know, especially now in my business, I deal with a lot of companies like yourself. And um, it's always fun just meeting new people and trying to figure out new challenges and, and right. you know help, helping people basically. So when you say like test the product, can we talk about how we do our tests? That way you don't reveal how other people, because I don't mind. For me, yeah. like, I don't mind. I'll talk about yeah, anything. Go, yeah. I, I think it's great. So you're talking about you know product as it's being made. Maybe we should, maybe people would find it interesting to hear about how a product gets tested for food safety as it's made. Do you think people would find that interesting? Sure, yeah. Or do you think... This is the point in the podcast where everyone goes, oh, Jesus, Paul. They're, turning off I'll be back they're finding week. other channels. I'll be back next week. <laughs> why don't you can kind of give an overview of where, where we're at with your process. Well, yeah. Why don't we talk about my, we'll, and we'll use my pasta sauce as an example because that way regarding confidentiality, you know, you're dealing with the brand owner and I'm granting, you know, full disclosure. There's no yeah. confidentiality regarding my shit because it's whatever i've always been kind of loosey-goosey about my own recipes like i legit people always think it's crazy i legitimately teach a class at the new york kitchen where i give away the recipe for our commercial sauce and i i don't know what to tell you like if you want to take it home and make it great i think that's wonderful most people consider it to be a pain in the ass and they just buy the jar anyway you know right. but i don't know i've never really found there to be anything to hide so we'll talk about my process so my process basically uh, so the it, so we'll start right from the door. So let's go all food safety. This is I want people to know the rigorous amount of measures that are in place to make sure that our jar of sauce is good, right? So it all starts with the in, before the ingredients even get here, right. right? So we have the ingredients we're going to use in my stuff. We'll say tomato, onion, green pepper, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We actually have to contact the people who sell those things to us and get what's called a spec sheet. What is a spec sheet? Yeah, so a spec sheet describes the raw material that you're buying, it describes attributes. You know, you for your end product, you wanna make sure you have good consistency of your finished product. So, you know, it's kinda of like that old saying, good materials in, good product in, good product out, right? Yeah. So, you want consistent raw materials, you wanna know what you're getting. What is that saying, really? Isn't that saying actually? Something, you can say that. Isn't it bullshit in, bullshit <laughs> yeah, out? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. It's your podcast, so you can say that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so basically you're checking to make sure that you're getting the same raw material each time. It's to the same attributes that you're looking for. Right. So like in tomatoes, you might want a, a specific acidic um, attribute. There, there could be a salt attribute that you're looking for. And so ideally you've done you know a lot of R&D and research ahead of time yeah. and you get to what you want and then you kind of make a partnership with that supplier and then you're you're buying that same material each each time. So then what we do is we order the ingredients. It's time to make poly sauce, right? The ingredients show up and as they show up, we're going to do a uh, we're going to do a receiving form. We're going to do a part of our receiving program. We're going to record who brought us that ingredient, what kind of shape was their truck in. We're going to actually take a black light and look at the palette and make sure that there's no, uh, you know, rodent urine or anything like That's that. Right. We're going to, I mean, we're running through basically an entire checklist to make sure that we approve of this delivery. Correct. Uh, is there, what am I missing about the actual delivery part? Yeah, yeah. some ingredients require temperature control. So if yeah. it's a frozen or refrigerated uh, ingredient, you want to make sure you're going to take a temperature of the truck. You're going to look at their records to make sure they've, you know, the supply chain of that product coming from wherever it comes from, maybe California to here. You want to make sure that that's, you know, stayed at the right temperature through the whole process. Right. So once it's in and once we agree it's the good stuff, now it's time to actually make the sauce, right? So now what we're gonna do is we're gonna create a batch record. 
What are you looking at? You looking labeling. At the I was saying, like, oh. I label the raw material coming in, right? Oh, label the raw material. Okay, yeah, yeah just say, you don't have to do, do hand signals. Just interrupt me. Okay. It's All just right. a podcast. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, so what did I miss? We have so, to right, label you stuff. Label, so the pallet's coming in. Now you label it with lot code information, right? Right. And if it has a certain allergens, you, you're going to label, call out the allergens and put allergen stickers on that raw material to help you manage the raw material in your facility. Got it. Got it. Okay. So now are we to processing? We are. Now we're ready to cook. Okay. Let's do it. So now we're ready to make sauce. So um, we have, we create what's called a batch record and a batch record is going to have all the information that the production team needs in order to make that. So it's going to have things like the recipe. It's going to have things like where are they going to store it after it's done? Who's working on it? Which kettle is it being made in? And then we're going to get down to something called our critical factors, our critical control points. And these are the things that kind of make sure that the sauce is actually going to be safe, right? So, again, we're using my sauce as an example. So, we're going to say uh, our first one really is temperature. So, in my case, my sauce has to be cooked to 195 degrees. Where does that number come from? Why 195? Yeah, so there's not, we're not getting into great detail. You know, there's scientific data and information out there that shows certain, you know, microbiological organisms are killed at certain temperatures. Mm -hmm. So, at a high level, that's where that data comes from, right? So, uh, there's, there's data out there. Um, you know, you'll submit your formula to food safety experts at different organizations a lot of them are educational organizations right they'll come back they'll look at your your formula and based on that scientific data that's out there uh, they'll tell you that yeah if you cook it minimally to a certain time and temperature now your product is is safe so they've got scientific research that shows them that if we do 195 degrees and the next part of that is and we hold it for six minutes at 195 right, degrees, time and temperature yeah. um, and that's at least we don't have to get we don't have to stay at 195. We have to get to at least 195. So generally, we hover from anywhere from like 196 to about 201 usually when we're actually doing this. And um, that has to stay that way for six minutes. And then we're ready to start jarring the sauce. And as the sauce gets jarred, we also have to take the temperature throughout the jarring process to make sure it never goes beneath 195. But we're missing something else, and that is pH which is exactly what is ph yeah so ph is a measure of um you know how alkaline or acidic your your product is so um you know much like temperature there's certain scientific data out there that shows bacteria won't grow under you know low acid or low you know um acidic conditions right yeah. so generally speaking there's requirements if you get your product under a certain ph it's it will be safe from that microbiological growth. So we cook to 195, we hold for six minutes, we fill at 195, and our pH is under, in my case, it's 4.2. And if we have all those things together, then we believe we have put the measures in place, right? Uh, that we are jarring a product that's going to be safe for public consumption. That's, right. that's the idea. So we jar and then we invert, which this is, here's a question I have for it, because I'm gonna take some Grandpa Pete knowledge. Uh, and I'm going to go against the quality assurance guy with the Grandpa Pete knowledge. We have to invert, I believe it's for uh, two minutes. I, I think that's what my, my recipe calls for is a two-minute inversion. Grandpa Pete, my grandfather, used to invert for about two seconds mm. on his mason jars. And in the years and years and years of canning tomatoes with my grandfather, which I guess I did probably for about 12 years, um, I never had a bad jar. <laughs> Off of a off of a two second inversion, why am I being asked to do a two minute inversion when a two second inversion is probably fine? Right. So you know, again, when you're working with organizations that are get, using scientific data to to show what kill you know time and temperature that kills organisms, they want to make sure an error on the safe side that you know if you touch the lid or you know the lid's not properly cleaned, you know by inverting that hot product right. is gonna kill any of that bacteria that so there, may be. There's buffer, right? There's buffer. Like for example, uh, and you don't have to necessarily agree with this because this is gonna go against everything you stand for, but right. we say 195. But if we cook to 194, nobody's going to die from eating our product, right? Well, I would always revert back, you know, since I'm on tape here now, yeah. um, I know, we'll I know. always revert back to you know, the scientific experts and they'll, they'll give you, a, you know, it's a good point, it's always time and temperature. So it, you know, there may be some room where you could be lower temperatures, but then longer time. So it's always that time temperature combination. You're right. In fact, they do offer that to you. If you wanted right. to go to like 185 or something, they do, and then they add some other measures to make it okay to only go to 185. Right. Or you're right, you could right. go, you know, if, you know, you could go a higher temperature and maybe less time, mm -hmm. but then again, now you're talking, maybe that could um, 
have some quality attributes, you know, it could affect your product. Like it might get too dark or it might burn your product. Yeah. So well, you wouldn't want to boil it. Right. Yeah. You got to find the happy medium. Right, right, right. Okay. So, uh, so we've measured our pH and we've done our, we've kept our temperature through the entire jarring process. We've also inverted our jars. Now the jars usually get cooled. Now in our case, we just kind of air cool, meaning they just sit around until they're cool. But a lot of bigger plants will force cool, right? What does that actually look like? Is that like a giant refrigerator or freezer? Yeah, or it could be air. It could be air. It could be some type of water bath. It's a variety of, of things, you know, fans. And did, um, are they just doing, is that, is there anything there that's quality uh, assurance wise or is that just straight up because they've got the money to do it and that's the more efficient way to do it it's probably to in bigger companies it's probably trying just time say efficiency yeah. and time right they're trying to get cool the product fast. through the system quicker you yeah. know yeah and and based on the product type and what you're doing in some cases you know you might want to cool it in a way to you, you don't want the product sitting in that in that temperature zone where bacteria can grow so generally speaking, you're you're using time and temperature to cook it at a certain temperature to kill that bacteria, and then you know at a high level you want to cool it quickly to get it through a temperature zone where it's not hanging out. If there's any spores or residual bacteria that might be left, you don't want that to sit at a temperature where they could start growing again. So then it gets labeled, and there's some quality involved in that, meaning that the uh, person who does the labeling has to make sure they've got the right label. And people might say, well, how hard is it to make sure you got the right label? It's actually harder than you think. Uh, I'll give you a good example of something that has happened and can happen, and that is I sell gallons of my sauce, and I sell jars of my sauce, and the labels look a lot alike. And if you're not paying attention, you can actually you can accidentally put a label that says one gallon on a 24 ounce bottle of sauce. So that's where like there has to be a couple checks and balances in the labeling as well. But the final kind of test actually comes 24 hours later, right? We do our day after test. And in our day after test, we're testing once again for that pH because that pH can change from cook time to 24 hours later. Correct. But do we know that in 24 hours that it has, and I'm going to use a word I learned, it's going to sound like I know what I'm talking about, but I can assure you the first time someone used this word with me, I Googled it. It's going to equilibrate within 24 hours? Yeah, so it's, you know, it's going to come to an aim, a room temperature or a stable temperature. It's going to come to an equilibrium um, type of a state where, you know, after you've made the product and it mixes and, you know, a lot of it has to do with temperature. Yeah, um, yeah it basically is, you know, the product and at a high level is just going to settle out and, and become you know, your, your final product. Yeah. And so we're doing some other things. We're weighing the jar to make sure the jet we're, we're actually literally, we're test tasting, uh, taste testing it to make sure that it tastes right. Uh, we're testing the vacuum seal of the lid and basically giving it one final go ahead to say, yes, we believe that this product is ready to go out into the public for consumption. Right. That's sort of the 24 hour. Yeah. The, the it's idea your final check before you pass it on to your customer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that's it. So that's in a nutshell. So those are, the parameters that are put in place to make sure that we're putting out good sauce. That's correct. Right? Yeah. That's right. Okay. Now let's talk about home stuff, stuff at home. Cause uh -oh. this is stuff people actually care about, right? Like for example, people cooking chicken, everybody ruins chicken because they're all afraid of undercooking chicken. Right. But is it is simple, Craig? I tell my wife this all the time. My wife obliterates chicken. She just obliterates it. She just cooks it to the point where it's basically jerky. You know, just get yourself a thermometer. Right. And cook it to 165, and you're going to have good chicken that's safe to eat. Am I right there? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've kind of always been like that, too. I always err on, on the more of the cook side. Lately, I'm trying to do a little bit better for my kids. Can my kids complain the same thing? Oh, this is dry and it's terrible. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, a lot of times, you know, the best, you're right, the best method is to use a thermometer. You, you stick it in the thickest part of the chicken. But if you, you know, through experience, if you're, if you're, yeah, 165 is the right temperature, you should get that. But, you know, you could cook it in a way that you're cooking it to say, you know, 155 or 160. And then if you let it sit for the final five or 10 minutes, you know, now, now it's still going to continue to cook till that 165, but you're not cooking it to 165 and then leaving it for five minutes and then it ends up at 180 or, or, or higher. Yeah, it's actually a local a local food celebrity gave me that advice once, but I had to assure him that I would never use his uh -oh. name. Uh, I'll tell you off the air, but a guy who everyone listening to this podcast would know once told me what chicken to pull it at 160. That's what he told yeah. me. He said, you're fine. He goes, and, there's, and we know there's buffers. And like, you can experiment that with yourself. You know, you can cook that, pull it at 160, still temp it, and you'll see the temperature continue to 165. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes I'll even keep like a lid on it so that it helps it continue to cook a little bit after yeah. you've removed what it. Are, what are the mistakes people make in their own home kitchens? Like when you study what you study, you mostly study for production facilities, right? You don't really study home food safety or do you? Well, you know, pr- primarily uh, manufacturing or retail, you know, yeah. but, you know, I do pay attention to what go- goes on at home or if you're visiting someplace, you know, I might... You know, I'll keep my mouth shut for the most part, but you know, a lot of people do cross contamination type of errors, right? So if you're handling raw, maybe your wife is cooking chicken, yeah. she's handling the raw chicken, it's started the process and now maybe goes on to something else. Well, if you don't follow the right GMPs, right? Now you're potentially cross contaminated. You, you have raw chicken on your hands and you could be touching other things. That know? was an example, I think, maybe in the class that I took that I had to take. Um, for the HACCP, I think that was an example that was cited. Was I don't even know if it was a real example or not, but it was, you know, a person making chicken and cookies for dessert. And this person stores the chicken above the cookies. And, of course, the drippings from the raw chicken right. go down onto the cookies, and now the cookies are contaminated. Right. Um, and that was an example used. And I think that we were told it was a real example, but I, who, what do I know? Right. But anyway, that does seem like something that could happen yeah. in a home well, kitchen. Well, like, I use a lot of utensils, right? So when I cook chicken at home, I'm cooking raw chicken. I'll use an initial fork or utensil to keep turning it. Well, over time, now the cook... You know, I don't want to keep using that raw fork or right. utensil. So over time, I'll get a new one. If anything, I probably err on the safe side, right? I, so I'll go through like a lot of utensils when I'm cooking just to make sure the final fork when the chicken's done is, is a is clean. And, and on the, the grill, it's kind of the same thing, right? Yeah. If you have a big grill and you're cooking maybe raw chicken in one area and maybe you know, ground beef and hamburgers in another area, that's an, you know, a real easy opportunity for things to get cross-contaminated. I, I, you know, I do the exact same thing. I'm so happy to hear you say that. When I'm cooking chicken at home, I do go through a few different utensils. You know, There's like the fork that I used when it was still raw, and then there's kind of like the middle fork right, that I used, right, right. and then there's kind of like the fork that I used at the end when I'm pretty sure everything was cooked and ready to roll. Yeah, and sometimes plates, and some, so sometimes you, know, you, you get a lot of dishes and plates and oh, forks. Oh, that's, that's I'm so glad you just said that. That's another example from the class I took that, again, I don't know that it was a real example, but it's t- you could totally see someone doing this. So you're going to grill some chicken, okay? So you put your raw chicken on a plate, and you walk out to your grill, and you grill your chicken. And what do you do when you're done grilling your chicken? You put the chicken right back on the plate mm. where the raw chicken was. Right. That is a major, major no-no. Correct. And I, I bet you that's happened yeah. somewhere. Or you see that if you're doing different ba- – maybe you're doing wings on the grill or something. You're doing different batches of wings. So you bring out a raw batch of chicken wings or cooking it. You know, and then you might, you know, lose track or whatever, and that you might use the same yeah. thing to cut the cooked and raw um, bin at, at the same time. So. so, so now here's my next question about food safety generally at home. Why, why is chicken so volatile? But then, you know, you go to beef, and now you're in a whole new world where all of a sudden it's like, oh no, you should leave it kind of raw. Nobody likes a well done steak. I mean, yeah. why are you allowed to eat red meat, but? So but, it's, I mean, it's I all different, different kind of organisms that you're trying to kill, right? With chicken yeah. and salmonella, it takes a little bit higher temperature to kill. Um, the, the red meat, I know that there are things to be said for whether or not that's good for you from a health standpoint, but specifically from a safety standpoint, is there anything wrong with red meat? So, you know, when you say red, it's kind of subjective. You, you should always do temperature, right? So mm-hmm. there, I know there's temperatures for if you like your meat uh, rare, medium rare, well done. And there's usually temperatures associated for each category. Um, so generally speaking, and those time and temperatures are to kill the certain organisms that would be associated with that. And generally speaking, you're talking about, you know, with beef, it's E. coli. It's killed at a little bit lower temperature. So you, you have some room there. Um, and, and then the big difference between, say, red meat. So with meat, generally speaking, if, if a, a cut of meat or steak is going to be contaminated, more than likely it will be on the outside surfaces. And those are the ones, even if you're having a red meat or rare steak, you know, you're cooking the outside surface. So the temperature of the outside surface is going to be high enough to kill that bacteria, yeah. but still the middle is going to be red. It may not be at the, the you know, the high, but the, the chance of that bacteria to be in the internal parts of those meat are a lot less. That's why with ground beef or hamburger, you know, it's all ground. So all that surface area is all mixed together. That's why you always need the highest temperature, internal temperature of that hamburger to be, you know, the, the final temperature that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Versus like a steak, you have a little bit more leeway there because you're, you know, by grilling the steak and cooking the outside of the steak, that's gonna be at the right temperature and you have some, you, you can let that go a little bit 
more on the rare side if you like it like that. All right, let me rapid fire a couple questions. Sure. Uh, I know that now they're coming out with edible cookie dough, but I've been eating cookie dough for 37 years. Yeah. <laughs> Why am I still alive? I don't know. That's I've been told question. cookie dough is bad for me. That's right. Well, you know, it's egg, right? Cookie dough has egg or f- yeah. and flour potentially, but right? Rocky drinks eggs right out of the shell. Oh, he drops it, them into a bottle. Is he still alive, though, Rocky? <laughs> I don't know. Why? So what is that? Is it? Is it? I had heard before that like one out of every so many eggs actually can have uh, contamination or something. Is What is so wrong with eating raw eggs? It does seem like some people actually consume raw eggs yeah. and they're fine. Is it harmful or not? I mean, yeah, I would certainly always err on the safe side and always, you know, raw egg comes from, there's not, there's mineral processing that's done to the eggs and you got to always think that it could have that salmonella, you know, modern farms and the way, the way people handle it, I'm sure, you know, it's much better than it's ever have been. So, and they do testing too, but you can never guarantee that it won't have that, that bad bacteria that, that you're trying to kill. So that's why generally speaking, it's not good to eat raw. Yeah. Raw eggs. So let me go back into your wheelhouse a little with like retail and manufacturing and stuff. Why are potato chip bags half full? That's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not an expert in that. I, if I had a guess, it would be the way it, there's probably gas. They probably fill the bag with potato chips and they probably put like a nitrogen gas or some type of gas in there for, for shelf life and freshness. I see. So once you open the bag, all that goes and now, you know, then you have half a bag of potato chips. Uh, another question. I think a lot of us have experienced this at some point or another. You go grocery shopping, you bring something home and it is for whatever reason it's defective. Whether it's a jar of something, maybe you open it up and you discover mold. Uh, maybe it's produce you've purchased that you discover is damaged or something like that. Uh, I'm not doing a good job of coming up with examples, but I think it's probably happened to all of us. You get home from the grocery store, you go through your groceries, and you find something that's not what it should be. Why does that happen? Because I can tell you from owning a production facility at this point, I'm going to tell you something no production facility owner is probably ever going to be willing to tell you, and that is shit does happen. And you have to do your best to control it, and we do control it. But there's still an element of human error in life that's just gonna happen, and I uh, I'll give I'll share a story with you before you t- truly answer the question about like why does shit happen. But the story I'll share with you is something I don't think I've ever told this story publicly. But back in 2015, we launched our business late 2014, early 2015. I get a phone call from the grocery manager at Pittsburgh Wegmans. And he says, somebody returned a jar of your Sunday sauce. It looks as though it's gone bad. And I go into an absolute panic because I'm like, oh my God. We get this bad jar and of course it happens at Wegmans. And it happens at the Wegmans too, Pittsburgh Wegmans, right? right? So I literally drop everything and I drive to Pittsburgh Wegmans to meet with the grocery manager. And he brings me in the back and he shows me the jar and we open it and sure enough, this is a jar that, for whatever reason, did not get sealed. It's just not sealed. It's gone bad. He's right. And I am in a panic, and I'm telling him, I'm going, I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened. Oh, my God. I, you know, I, I really hope that we can continue to sell our product here. I, 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 you know, and I'm, I, I, I'm just I'm falling over my words. I don't know right. what to do. Please forgive me. Please forgive me, sir. And he goes, he's like, relax, relax. And he opens up a drawer he had, and it, there's like 12 items in there and he goes these are these are just from the last two weeks that's funny (laughs) of people returning things for whatever's wrong right so it happens right and the chances that we are going to go to the grocery store and head home with something is it's not a great chance but i think in our lifetimes it happens once or twice so i guess back to the original question why does it happen why do things go wrong so it's tough right you think about but think about all the touch points and handling from when you you know, make your product and you put the, the cap on and you put it in the box, you know, you're you're delivering it potentially, you're shipping it, you're using carrier, it could get moved around on the truck, you know, it gets to the store, you have people unloading the boxes, putting it on the shelf. So in all those handling points, yeah, something can happen. You know, maybe yeah. the jar's dropped, the lid is banged against something and, and you know, things happen like that. Well, actually, or that's you, what even, said. At, even at home too, right? Your kids could be, you know, moving stuff around in the refrigerator, knock the cap and you know now when you go to use it it's um yeah it's cracked or something well that you know that's so funny you say that because uh that uh, is what the guy said to me now that i remember that conversation he said relax he goes it might not even have been you right. he goes whoever stocked the shelf might have accidentally knocked it 
against like the shelf and that can pop a lid you know and then it sat there for a week somebody bought it and by that time it's gone bad so he he did kind of explain to me like that could happen really at any point right okay and that's why the documentation that we're doing here and that you're doing is great because now you know we're putting the checks and balances in place We'll have documentation to show that we've looked at your product, we've tested your product, and we have all those records. So if something were to happen, you know, we can kind of go back to those records and just, just to make sure it wasn't our, our problem. Oh, I love, A, we're keeping the records, but B, the other thing I love that we're doing now that we didn't used to do, but we've been doing now for a few months is we're keeping a long-term retain bottle yes. of everything. So every batch of, of my sauce that we make, we take one bottle and we save it forever. Or at least for, you know, the shelf life of the jar. So that if in 18 months somebody calls me and says, I bought a jar produced in, you know, January of 2021, I can actually go and get a jar from the exact batch they're talking about and open it up and test it and see if they're jerking my chain or not. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Let's get into a very controversial topic. Best by dates, use by dates, expiration dates. How strict are they? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's just like the contract that you're, you know, you're buying a raw material and they've put on a, a use by date or best before date or, you know, so, you know, that that's an important date. And, and you know, you'll want to make sure that you've done, you know, we've done the research on. So if we come up with a new product, product, whatever, product A, you know, we want to make sure that we've tested it. We've used a third party lab to kind of do the microbiological testing. And we want to feel good about that it will last through whether you put an expiration date on it or best before. Um, we want to make sure we have the records and documentation that we, you know, we feel good about that. Well, I've always wondered if it's a company covering their ass to a certain extent. We know that that jar or whatever product we're talking about is going to be good for a certain amount of time. Uh, so going away from pasta sauce for a second, going to something a little bit more perishable like <clears throat> milk or something like that, where it's, you know, where they're making that stuff and that stuff's only good for a couple of weeks, right? Uh, I've always wondered if it says, you know, use by or best by January 20th. If what they're, if they're, are they covering their asses? And what I mean by that is, are they saying, look, it might be good on January 21st, but if it's not, it's not on us. We told you it was only good till January 20th. Yeah, it's tricky because ultimately if someone gets sick or someone doesn't like their experience with your product, they're always going to go back to the manufacturing company, no matter yeah. if it says used by or expiration. Um, but you're right. Yeah. I mean, and, but generally speaking, if you have a perishable item, let's just say a meat item, you know, most companies have done the research and, and, and the, the background to say that, hey, this meat item is only good for 14 days and that's how they date it. Now, in the big scheme of things, you know, they, they probably give a little bit of buffer. So more than likely, it might be good for a couple more days, but, you know, it's how much of a risk do you want to take or how big of a chance do you want to take? Now, what uh, to what extent are we going to know if our food has gone bad and, and to what extent can it be truly hidden? So, in other words, milk is pretty obvious if it's bad, right? right? right. Meats, a lot of times, like I, I know just a couple <laughs> weeks ago, my wife had bought some sausage that sat in the back of the fridge. She tried opening it two weeks later and it was clear as day that this sausage was no longer good, right? You right. can immediately smell it and something's not right. Uh, a lot of products do kind of my grandfather used to say it'll talk to you it'll tell you if it's right. not good but that's not always the case right are there example can you give me an example of something you can eat that would taste perfectly fine in the moment but then would later make you sick yeah so it's tough i mean just off the top of my head i know that you know I, let, let's say like garlic right garlic is usually an oil or some type of liquid or some type of preservative you know once you open that and start using it um, you know, through time, garlic has such a strong flavor and smell anyway. When that goes bad, uh, I would think that would be hard to kind of capture. Mm-hmm. And there are certain bacteria that you that could be bad for you that would be growing in that. And then, you know, it could produce a toxin that would not necessarily get destroyed by heat. That, that would be bad for you. And maybe botulism could be a good example of that. You know, botulism <clears throat> could grow in an environment that is um you know low oxygen and and that necessarily you you know that produces that bad toxin and you necessarily would not taste that and you know that that could be a problem that's kind of scary actually. yeah yeah that is pretty scary to think especially when you're talking about garlic i know a guy who makes pasta sauce uses quite a bit that's of garlic. right you better, check be your date. you better check your dates and damn straight i better uh okay so how about let's talk about stories where shit goes wrong right so what is the best story you can share about 
an absolute clusterfuck of like food safety failure. Yeah. So I'll just keep things very general. And, and these are stories that are in the news. But, you know, there's examples of, of public companies that um, and this is a public story. It's in the news with, with peanut butter. Right. This particular company made a peanut butter and, uh, you know, they had some problems. They had a, basically a leaking roof and that roof was leaking into product. Uh, there was bacteria that was being transferred from the leaking roof, you know, into the product. And this company actually uh, was testing the product microbiologically. They were getting microbiological reports back from the lab saying that there was problems in the product, and they they started to still ship the product. Ooh. And in this, you know, and this is a public story. Uh, you know, uh, people got sick. Actually, I think there's some deaths involved. Oh my god! Um, that caused uh, you know government to come in and look at things and interview people. And so people definitely, you know, lost their jobs. I think there's um, legal things where people went to jail for, for this issue. So stuff like that certainly happens. Well, that's like, I mean, that's, that's, that's quite a worst extreme. case scenario. Yeah. But as, and as you said, and I don't remember the name of the company or anything like that, but that was, that is a story that's been in the news. I mean, that's sort of a publicly known right. story. And it's been a few years now, but yeah. that, that's really caused a lot of, you know, new regulations and, you know, sparking like things like the, our government with the FISMA plans and things like yeah. that is... Yeah kind of why we're doing a lot of this today. Can we talk about recalls for a second? So a recall is essentially the worst thing that can happen. Uh, well, no, that the, the story you just said is the worst right, thing that can right. happen. You could be in jail, right? <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, actually, let's say, okay. A recall isn't actually the worst thing that can happen, but it's on the list of pretty bad things that could happen, right? right? So recalls uh, appear to happen all the time because I think that you have some sort of an obligation, and you tell me, but is there an obligation from a manufacturer, from a company, to alert the public to a recall? Yeah, so yeah. Once, once you make product and you know that you have a situation where you've put product into the common, into the you've shipped product and it's out there and you know that there's an issue, you're obligated to report that issue to, to the government, to the FDA. Yeah. And that most likely would, the end result of that would be a recall. Yeah. And that those are for, you know, food safety type of issues. So maybe you have a foreign material in there like glass or... Which is a bad one. Obviously, in that case, you do want to do a recall. Right. It's basically for things that could cause human harm. Mm. That's where you're obligated to contact the FDA and go through that process. And like, again, most most likely would be a recall. But haven't recalls become a lot more common now than they used to be? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. Because, you know, there's you know, consumers are more, they're looking at things a little bit more. They're looking at labels more. So a big common source of a recall is mislabeled product. Yeah. So you may make a product and there could be an allergen in the product and maybe the label doesn't reflect that allergen or you put the wrong label on it. Well, if that's out there, um, now you have unlabeled product out there with allergens in it. So maybe a consumer gets a product, it doesn't have that allergen in it, they have a reaction and you know that, that could cause a big, a big problem. Yeah. But there, it, it does seem, you know, because now that I'm following this stuff, it seems like there's almost a weekly recall of something. Yeah, sometimes almost one a day. You really? know? Yeah, and, and plenty of them are justified. And like you said, if you find a foreign object in something, you better pull the whole batch back because you just never know, right? Yeah. But um, there are other times, and uh, I, don't, I don't know how specific I want to get with this, where I think recalls can happen that, that maybe actually there is no real public... Uh, public health um, issue at hand. Right. Like, I think I'll just come out and say it. So basically, if you're making something, but it wasn't done under inspection, um, they can call you back on that stuff, even though there's really no reason to believe that anything wrong happened to it. It just wasn't done at a time. It, you just, you did it at the wrong time. You did it off hours or something like that. Right, right. Um, but that, I mean, that, to tell you the truth, though, I mean, the fact that it's done under inspection, in their defense, the fact that it's done under under uh, inspection is part of what the public pays for. It's part of what their tax is for. Right. So I guess you failed if you didn't do it under inspection, and I guess it is subject for recall. I'm arguing against myself now. Yeah, it's almost like you're on a witness stand. You, you have to prove that you're always innocent. If you don't have those records, yeah. or you're not, or you're doing it something that's not under the inspection, then you can't prove it, right? Yeah. So they have to err on the safe side where maybe, yeah, sometimes that could be a recall, right? Because yeah. yeah. you can't prove otherwise. You can't prove that you made it in a safe right. form. Right, right. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. What else? What am I missing? What are the yeah. questions people always ask you that I haven't asked you yet? Uh, that's a good one. Um, 
I'm sure people always have questions for you about yeah. this kind of stuff. I'm trying to think. Your too life enough. is so exciting. It is very exciting. <laughs> um, you know, I think people are always concerned about the expense. You know, the food safety costs a lot of money. I can't yes. do it, right? Yeah, and, yeah. you know, a lot of times when you talk about that, you look at a cost of a recall, right? So maybe a company, maybe like yourself, right? You're not ready to kind of make the full commitment, right? And you don't maybe, you know, there's conversations about, how much you should spend in different areas. Well, I always like to go back and say, well, geez, if we don't do this or we don't, you know, do, do these expenses, right. look at the cost of a recall, which, right. you know, a lot of companies right. don't survive recalls, you right. know, right. Uh, it's right. just right. only yeah. re- usually the big ones. Yeah. Well, I think we said it all, Craig. I yeah, think thank we've you. done it. What do you think? Uh, yeah, hopefully you don't have to edit this too much, right? I don't think so. I'm, I was a little nervous today, too. Really? My, yeah, my first podcast. Well, you're in good hands with me. It's kind of like when we're out there, and I consider myself being good hands with you because you know what you're doing. You're very nervous out there. Well, now yeah. I'll pay attention to that. So in morning. this world, I kind of still know what I'm doing a little That's bit. That's right. So you have me in my off element here. Being, I like it. I maybe like the it, next buddy. thing I can do, you know, TV and stuff like that, too. I don't think you've got okay, the looks right. for TV. I, I would agree. I would agree. <laughs> Why do you think I did radio my whole life? That's you ever true. heard the saying, face for TV? That's true. I can't do TV. I've done TV a couple times, and every time I look at it, I go, ugh. ugh. Yeah, well, even this, I'm going to hear my voice, and I'm going to say, I, I I'm probably won't even listen to this. Well, I won't be able to. still happens to me, though. Oh, I mean, really? I spent 15 years on the radio, and I would still listen to my voice, and I would every time I would go, stop mumbling. Clear your throat. Right. Slow down. Like those are things that in 15 years I was still yelling to myself, saying, "What are you doing? You know, shut up. <laughs> Let your guests talk. Those kind of things." All right, Craig. Maybe we ought to go back to work. What do you Real think? work. Yeah. We have Sounds a produ- good. we have a production meeting in 10 oh, minutes. Oh, that's right. That's right. All right, Craig. Craig. All right. Michelson. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. This was good. I had fun. And, did you? Uh, yeah. Good. I, think I, the listeners I was did nervous, too. though. I, I'm still a little nervous, All but right. hey, it was good. All right. Craig Michelson, ladies and gentlemen.